0: The Dig is a podcast produced in conjunction with Jacobin Magazine, which you probably figured out by now. And yes, Jacobin is a print publication, not just your favorite source of online commentary, but also long-form serious print journalism and socialist analysis. The magazine is released quarterly, and it runs at around 130 pages, filled with award-winning design and the ideas that movements need to thrive. Dig listeners can join more than 50,000 Jacobin subscribers supporting this vital work for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's very extensive archive online. First-time subscribers only, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly digjacobin, all lowercase, That's b-i-t dot l-y slash digjacobin, all in lowercase. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Kim Stanley Robinson is one of the greatest science fiction writers of all time, and he takes the Marxian project seriously. As he discusses in this episode, the great Frederick Jameson was his PhD advisor, and Robinson remains up to date on the latest eco-Marxist theory in history. As a science fiction writer, Robinson's genius is to combine cutting-edge social science and wonderful narratives to imagine futures that clarify the present like no other work can. But until recently, those books were always a few decades, or a few centuries out. No longer. Robinson's most recent book, The Ministry for the Future, out in paperback this fall, has prompted a ton of debate on the next few decades of climate politics, Starting right now. While Robinson's books have grappled with a future marked by global warming for decades, this is the first to imagine what the next three decades would look like under a relatively optimistic scenario that includes millions dying from a massive heat wave in India, multiple forms of geoengineering, armed resistance to fossil capitalism, what we might call eco-terrorism, and a highly technocratic form of Green-Keynesianism, which Robinson thinks could be run by the world's central banks. This isn't anybody's green dream or whatever, to paraphrase Nancy Pelosi but it is a helpful guide to the decades ahead that refuses the typical binaries of apocalyptic doom and saccharine utopianism. Robinson's novels have always tackled the questions of science, politics, and ecology with notorious complexity and nuance. But he has never taken on such a near future. In doing so, he's pushed socialist readers and liberal readers, too, who have devoured his books for years to think well outside of their comfort zone about what climate politics will look like. Robinson has been on a lot of podcasts talking about his new book recently, so we did something different with our guest host, Daniel Aldana Cohen, who read 11 of Robinson's books during the pandemic quarantine, running from Red Mars through Ministry. In this episode, Cohen takes Robinson back to the Mars trilogy to meditate on some of the core themes of that early work, interrogating how Robinson first developed his views of science, left-wing political change, Marxism, ecology, and economics at the end of the Cold War period, and as they evolved through Robinson's subsequent work. Then they focus on how these ideas have changed or held firm in Robinson's new work on climate politics. Before we get started, this podcast, The Dig, the one you are listening to, the one you very well may listen to frequently and depend upon for ruthless criticism of all that exists under the sun, we, by and overwhelmingly large, depend on support from you, our listeners, to keep this podcast going. And the place where you, our listeners, can support us is at patreon.com slash the dig. So the main reason to donate is because we depend on your donations to put out this podcast available to all freely, regardless of their ability to pay. But we also, if you contribute at least $10 a month, have books, tote bags, mugs to send you in the mail as a thank you. And for a contribution of any amount at all, you will get our weekly new Dig newsletter emailed to you, and it's really good. If you are a supporter on Patreon and you're not yet getting our new weekly newsletter, go to the Patreon website and make sure that Patreon is forwarding messages to the correct email address. Again, thank you for listening, but please, if you've been meaning to do this, and if you want to have our new weekly email newsletter emailed to you, Please support the Dig at Patreon.com/TheDig. That's patreo the thedig Thank you. And here's Kim Stanley Robinson, an American science fiction writer who has written over 20 novels, most recently *The Ministry for the Future*, and he has won both the Hugo and Nebula awards for best novel, the highest honors in science fiction. He is interviewed by Daniel Donna Cohen a professor of sociology at the University of California, Berkeley, where he directs the Socio-Spatial Climate Collaborative. He is the co-author of A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal.
1: Kim Stanley Robinson, welcome to The Dig. Thank you. Good to be with you. Thank you. So Stan, if I may, um, it's great to chat. I read 11 of your books during the quarantine. Uh, It was pretty great. (laughs) Kind of a simultaneous nonstop adventure uh, and a seminar in environmental social science. I've got a sheaf of kind of heavy questions about your big ideas in front of me. And I should warn you, some of those questions are long, though not as long as your books. Yeah. But I just want to start, yeah, in the present moment. Where is your mood on climate politics in fall 2021? What developments are scaring you and keeping you up at night? What developments are making you
2: optimistic that we
1: can avoid the worst?
2: What's scaring me is a, the latest IPCC report that is really confirming that we are in a terrible trouble on, on the edge of catastrophe and we need to act fast. Uh, what's encouraging me is discoveries that I've made since writing The Ministry for the Future, because I wrote that book in mostly in 2019. So that's like a previous geological era now because of the pandemic. And certainly the timeline that I portrayed in Ministry for the Future, which was vague and notional anyway, is just shot because things are happening faster in the mitigation front, in the attempts to come to term with it. Um, The catastrophes are coming faster also than scientists had predicted, but it's in the range of their predictions. The response is picking up, I think, because the pandemic was a slap in the face. So I'm talking about, like, I didn't know about the network for greening the financial system, which is 89 of the biggest central banks trying to figure out how to tweak finance towards green work. I didn't know that there were actual papers in Nature quantifying the possibilities of uh, pumping water out from under the big glaciers in Antarctica and Greenland. These, I mean, I wrote about them in Minister for the Future, but I wrote about them as if they were not yet in existence when they already had been for a few years. So I, I was behind the curve in some ways. And now, as I learn more, and, you know, we're coming into the the COP meeting in uh, Scotland and then also the UN environmental uh, meeting uh, next March in Nairobi. These These will be moments for the international community to come together and stare at each other and admit that, not enough is happening fast enough, not enough is getting paid for uh, enough, and um, it might be a chance to kick up the, the energy on the responses. So we can talk about more of all these things, but that kind of puts it, that gives you an outline of where I am. I want to now start to bring us back and kind of work, our, we're going to work our way back towards Mars
1: and then back up toward the, the present. The amazing thing about the Mars uh, trilogy and then the short stories that came after, to me, those are the earliest of your books that I've read. So I know they're not your foundation, but they're my foundation of KSR. They come from, in a lot of ways, the context of the late 80s and the 1990s, the end of the Cold War. On the other hand, when I, re- when I read the Mars trilogy, you know, about a year ago, it felt like such a fresh tome of climate fiction that virtually all of it could have been written yesterday. So to kind of warm us up here, what, what do you think has changed the most and change the least in the way that you think about the big questions of politics and
2: ecology? Um, I'm an American leftist. I was then, I still am. What does that mean? Well, I've always been of the belief that it's a false distinction between the environmental and the social. I've always wanted there to be a, a green-red United front, a kind of brown movement, I guess it would be if you mix those two colors, but people used to talk about watermelons, et cetera, et cetera. I never saw the contradiction there, nor the reason why the, what you might call the human-oriented left to be uh, critical of the biocentric-oriented left or vice versa, that it was a united front. And I see that maybe that's become more obvious the ne- neoliberal capitalism has had a th- a 30 year run and shown that it's inadequate to the situation and and based on false premises and uh, an unjust and indeed stupid system but it's also the law of the land globalization is real in the in the economic sense and the pandemic brought that home to us so um you know what can i say 30 years of of uh, incessant uh, history despite the sense of frozen immobility that has also accompanied the the kind of hypnosis of the neoliberal era and, and the breakdown of that, the kind of breaking up of uh, the economics as a discipline uh, with legitimacy, that blowing up in 2008 and the years since and being shown to be a kind of a a highly ideological uh, a science, uh, overpowered by power politics, where quantification has been used to mask uh, injustice and sensible environmental policy. That's becoming more obvious, even though the the next political economy is, you know, yet to be fully exposed or born, uh, or uh, legislated. So um, that brings us to thinking about the Green New Deal, etc., cetera, et cetera. So, this is too big of a question. I mean, my God, the last 30 years has been granular and gradual and encompassed a huge part of my working life. To go back to your, at the beginning of your question, the idea of KSR could, I mean, this the work before Red Mars is kind of a precursor, a kind of an 80s apprenticeship and figuring out the craft and also freeing myself from the, the, the craft truisms of both american science fiction and of american fiction in general and allowing myself to go back to older forms of the novel and uh inventing my own uh, form of the novel which the mars trilogy was the the great um discovery for me the, the the invention of myself as a novelist starts there so you haven't missed much it's not exactly juvenilio the work for my 80s because i wasn't that young but it is more conventional work and me figuring out how to do what I really wanted to do.
1: Great. I'm, I'm confident that I'm going to get to all of it. Um, I've got incredible momentum right now, but I, I appreciate that. And since you, you raise this question of political economy, let, let me start with a question about that. Uh, and I've got a few sort of big meaty themes from the Mars era and afterwards I want to dig into. But eco-economics is this idea, it's a subplot in the Mars trilogy, your characters developed this thing they call eco-economics, which to me evokes ecological economics, you know, a paradigm that emphasizes that the economy is embedded in nature, right? Big shock. <laughs> so the fundamentals of the economy aren't, aren't supply and demand, but the rules of physics, chemistry, biology. Ecological economists, of course, uh, are much more worried about climate change, much less optimistic about quote-unquote green economic growth. And what strikes me really in the Mars trilogy is that your account of the kind of planetary transformation it emphasizes a really holistic vision of a planet where every ounce of nitrogen, of oxygen, of topsoil matters. I think you link that to eco-economics. I think even more kind of precise uh, account of that in Aurora, where there's a really sense of a real delicate holism in this earth ship or generation ship that you, that you narrate. So I'm wondering what got you thinking about kind of that eco-economics version of political economy back in the 80s and 90s, and how was the way you were thinking about political economy then how did that end up shaping the way that you took on the political economy of climate change?
2: It's a leftist tradition, um, and it's in economics itself, to say um, that standard capitalist economics is effectively a Ponzi scheme that obscures the an extraction that can't last forever of uh, both natural and human resources for uh, purposes of exploitation and accumulation in classic analysis of capitalism and that by ignoring that stuff, by making these negative externalities are just not in the equations at all. You know, like Nancy Fraser's very good on social reproduction being ignored, but also the natural world. You get Joan Robinson, Hazel Henderson, Herman Daly with his steady state economics. Um, You're seeing it now uh, being elaborated in the donut economics of a uh, remind me of her last name, but in any oh, Kate case. Kate Rayworth. Yes, Kate Rayworth, uh, Donut Economics. So, um, this is already uh, a tradition in uh, left economics trying to uh, bring what you might call the eco Marxist uh, tradition into a direct collision, uh, a critique of uh, mainstream American academic capitalist economics as practiced in think tanks, academies, business schools, and in legislation and the way the world works in uh, neoliberal globalized capitalism. So in that tradition, there was um a couple for me a couple important precursors, uh Erdus Kallenbach's Ecotopia, and his his working colleague, Fitjof Capra, um Uh, The Tao of Physics and the Web of Life was important in trying to uh, describe the physics-slash-metaphysics-slash-morality of this action. An important thinker somewhat uh, neglected now because his books were popular bestsellers. And then also Ursula Le Guin's The Dispossessed, where you have a planet, a moon, an Aris, that is uh, uh, in a scarcity situation becomes necessarily uh, democratic socialism and very feminist uh, socialism, and then the the home planet Urus, is still a a kind of a monopoly capitalism of the late imperial style well that 's the great utopian novel, almost of the whole tradition of utopian novels, the dispossessed, and was a huge uh, inspiration to me because it taught me that you can do a novel with characters with action with everything that novels uh, the the pleasures of the novel. Can include a political element, and it's almost the same, at least analogous to the way that um, an an economic analysis can include the the biosphere and and other animals and and the planet itself. Um, so that all came together for me, and um, in writing Red Mars, I felt that the projective economics, leftist speculative economics, was um, not very robust for, in other words, I wanted a model. I wanted some examples and some uh, abstraction to model what I would do on Mars. Well, there was a Bookchin and and daily. There was the example of Mondragon and the whole um, Yugoslavian workers cooperatives. There was a a radical political economy, a a textbook from that time. And I'm just trying to remember, I was um, beating the bushes for uh, useful help in imagining a, a Martian political economy that brought the, the planetary, this even Marx's concept of the metabolic rift, the idea that you needed to have a exchange of energy going between uh, nature and humans in a, in a cycle that was not closed, but because we get this incredible influx of energy from the sun, but was also not um, deliberately wasteful uh, in order to make a profit. So these were the things that came into uh, play back then. Sorry, as a historian of myself, it's like, wait, w- um, you know, I'd have to go out and look at a bookshelf in the other room and see if I could stimulate memories of that. But that was a long time ago.
1: No, it, it all fits. You know, the dialogue with the dispossessed, of course, feels very present in Mars. I want to dive right into the Marx question. I had planned to ask it a bit later, but since we're on the dig and you have brought it up, on the Ezra Klein show, Klein asked you to describe Marxism to someone who doesn't know much about Marxism. And you had a great answer, uh, you know, emphasizing that for Marx, how people act and feel is shaped by power relations, you know, and under capitalism, of course, extremely unequal power relations. You noted that Marx was a great historian, made bad predictions, but had some great methodological tools we can still use. So that was a great 101. But this podcast, now we've got to get to the 501 level because you're talking to tens of thousands of people who know a lot about Marxism. Uh, And as you pointed out, you're clearly up to date on your Marxism, on your eco-Marxism. You know, I've seen the the Jason Moore references in your work. So my question for, for you and, and for the comrades is which elements of Marxist thought do you think today, you know, in 2021, merit the most emphasis, the most exploration? And which elements of Marxist thought do you think are best left behind? Which Marxism do you want today's socialists and climate leftists to be thinking
2: with day in and day out? Well, that's hard because I would say that the the listeners and the comrades in general know more about Marxism than I do, without wanting to claim any kind of ignorance or renunciation. I just, uh, working novelist as an American leftist, and as a student of Frederick Jameson, one thing I can say immediately is that although Fred would hate this, I'm a kind of Jamesonian. Marxist, in that I understand Marx by way of the mediation of Jameson's instruction and in his interests and his continuous work on what has sometimes been called Western Marxism. So um, Adorno and Horkheimer, Marcuse, Althusser, Lukács, this very uh, and Gramsci uh, importantly these these uh, Western Marxists. Have been interpreting the the originary written material of Marx for use, for praxis in the 20th century, now the 21st. And then I use what I what first I read Jameson. Then if he seems to have indicated that I need to know more, either by what he says about them or what he says to me directly. I should include Raymond Williams here, very important for me. Um, then I'll read those people. And often, Jameson's summaries of their work is clearer to me and even more useful in terms of what I can put to use than the original material itself. And he, I just run through the French tradition in a recent seminar of his that I've listened to. And so you've got also Sartre, the very important and uh, uh, less so for me lacan derrida foucault the whole um french tradition so going back to i mean what can i say about marx it's like the it's like talking about the bible when i've been i don't know living a life and reading exegeses uh, that are i can scarcely remember the bible i can scarcely remember marx so with that preface he's interesting on how bad he is with Engels and their scientism. Like, it'll all be all right because we'll science our way out of it. Almost using science in a verb in the stupid American way. When uh, science itself is just a, a human practice that has sharp limits on its powers. And, well, those limits are being uh, pushed out always, but uh, against increasing resistance from the, the laws of physics, you might say. So it's interesting to watch both the good and the bad in what I remember of reading. And sometimes these are anthologies of uh, Marx and Engels writing about science, in which case the anthologists' choices might have uh, pushed my responses. So again, I'm bad on this. But metabolic rifts, that's a very useful term. That we It's like crevasses in a glacier. You're walking along on the ice thinking, this is fine. I could, this is a road. I can walk forever on this. And then, boom, you drop down a hole. So in Aurora, I wrote about this a lot, like what if your supply of nitrogen is insufficient, like it would be on Mars if we tried to terraform Mars. These metabolic rifts are are not solvable by science. They're facts of the natural world um, that might be contingent on local conditions. They're not universal laws, but nevertheless, they constrain what we can do. And sometimes Marx is really good on that. So why the we science our way out of it? Well, this is a 19th century statement, and there's a whole lot of Prometheism, Prometheanism in the 19th century discovery that science could be translated into immense power over the natural world. This is where Jason Moore's work is very great uh, corrective, the, the seven cheaps, the four cheaps, the places in which it was easy to exploit quickly that are no longer easy because we're running out of things, Marx, well, they, there's, there's old talk about being a materialism, of trying to ground your philosophy in the actual real world of material stuff. That's always useful. Also, I guess what I would call the moral um, underpinnings, which, of course, again, is a very suspect word, but let's say this, uh, there's an urge toward, in Marx towards justice and equality in a world that was very unjust and very unequal and saying that, look, it's coming, the world's going to get better, because this is so bad, it's got to get better. And when it gets better, there will be justice and equality. Well, these are stupendous generalizations. You could say, I mean, you could say that about Marx, you could say that about the Buddha or Jesus. At that point, I suppose you would want to reorient yourself as an analyst, as a historian of capitalism, that history's happening for reasons that have to do with power relations having to do with an economic system being imposed by a political system. So that, again, is a level of abstraction. But I'm going to say that that's where Marx is permanently useful, is that he insists that politics and economics are the same thing, and they're a power relation among people that developed out of feudalism, where it was very obvious, and it's still the same in capitalism, where it isn't quite as obvious because of... Supposed social mobilities, etc cetera, etc cetera.
1: i I want to come into this idea of science because uh, you were saying you know we can't just science our way out of these problems. I found reading your books just enormously liberating and helping me think about science and technology and you know I, what I sort of took away from from your books and the debates is that you actually do a really great job of decoupling like a kind of ethos of science and specific technological projects. You have characters who will often argue against. Uh, whole realms of technological development, whether it's terraforming or AI or or what have you, on the basis of a kind of scientific ethos. And that's very different from what a lot of kind of critics uh, of science on the left would argue, where they would say, you know, science, uh, capitalism, racism, colonialism, technology, they're all kind of lumped together. Whereas my sense with you is it's more like science is a good thing. It's intensely contested. Different people are going to have very different ideas of what counts as scientific. And, you know, the project of just pursuing annual technological thing is often sort of the opposite of a scientific ethos. So I'm kind of curious, you know, how you came to develop your own sort of expansive concept of science. I wondered if it had something to do with finding common ground between liberals and socialists and communists in the 20th century, maybe, but also what gives you the, the sense that there is a way to potentially decouple science from, you know, corporate influence
2: from the histories of racism and colonialism that it's connected to. Well, it's connected to it under the umbrella of capitalist exploitation, which would want to harness and think of that word in the most literal sense of controlling and mastering science for its own purposes of, of profit and power, and that science is a, a different enterprise of people uh, trying to understand how the world works and that can humans um exert a little more power in that world for their own uh, comfort and also for the reduction of suffering. So I am pretty Manichaean about this and uh, I'm having to take on um, a kind of Ordorno negative dialectics that sees science as rationality that uh, uh, goes for quantity over quality and, and, and removes the idea of projects and purposes and ends for merely quantification and means along the way. Um, that has to be taken on, but I want to go back to my own Manichaeism, science good, capitalism bad, and that science has been a, a, a proto-utopian project from its very start, which goes back into the Paleolithic. Jameson made a good point just this morning um, that uh, myth for the ancients was a early science attempting to explain the world, and that there are rational stories being embedded. This is kind of out of Levi Strauss, and that science In the modern period, and and Galileo being the great figure there for me and for a lot of people, the the universe is uh, written in numbers and is a one physicist called a, a, a weird and inexplicable relationship between mathematical formulas of great difficulty and subtlety to phenomenon in the natural world that comes in through our eyes and the rest of our bodies. Why should that be? Mysterious, and yet, boy, the evidence backing it is extensive now to the point of being, I think, a, a, a proven case that these four powers of physics, the, the sense of a theory of everything that we're trembling on the brink of with, with huge discrepancies between um, gravity and quantum mechanics, etc., that this world of physics and of science is describing the phenomenal world in ways that are incredibly useful And so science was a kind of utopian project. Let's understand things, and then we might have better control and less suffering. And then capitalism is just the feudalist power project of the few trying to exploit the many and get away with it without getting, you know, decapitated in some kind of revolution. So um, for capitalism, science is dangerous and needs immediately to be bought. And Galileo himself was bought and worked in the armaments industry for the the, uh, Venetian Republic among other projects that were military in origin. So it started BOT. And since then, one project of science is to try to free itself for the good and and um, point out that the bad is really bad. And now in this uh, uh, moment of climate crisis, of um, mass extinction event and biosphere breakdown, push has come to shove where science is saying, look, we can't go on the way we're going on uh, because it'll wreck our bioinfrastructure and we will all suffer accordingly. And then capitalism saying, no, 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 we can always make a profit. But profit itself, by definition, is exploitation and uh, unsustainably so. The way that word works in, in the modern world is simply a, a kind of a Ponzi scheme, always, and a ripoff of the future generations. So now I see a a kind of a Hindu god type conflict, and this has been true for me for the last 30 years, just a visionary sock puppet read of history, current events, science versus capitalism. And these are two giant powers, social forces, such that littler ones like democracy or justice or environmentalism, that these are Scurrying around the two giants, trying to shout in their ears, trying to give them advice like managers in the corner of a giant boxing match. Um, You should be working towards this, and then you would do better if you tried that. And so, um, what I find on the left, and 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 as a leftist, I am often dismayed, is a confusion, a constant category error, that that says science is just the instrumentality of capitalism. Well, that's to give up. The most powerful force for good that we have invented as human beings, rather than trying to say that's a leftist project to begin with, and we need to listen to them more. So there you have to study the sociology of it, and I know that's what you do to um, look at the various ways that how is science instituted in human institutions, how's it embodied, how's it practiced, how's it legislated, how's it funded? And in each one of those cases, you see a, a micro battle of the larger battle. And what you would want as leftists to say science could be uh, devoted to the creation of justice and sustainability and a good fit between humans and this uh, biosphere that can only happen if th- if all humans are living in justice. That's part of the project. So science is an ally rather than just a, a, a weapon of the foe. And this my novels are always arguing this so um you could see that when you read me it won't be a surprise to you having read these books in sequence like that it's striking
1: to hear you you know talk about the origins in the paleolithic so i was going to ask you about that i mean in shaman you have characters basically groping towards a scientific method in the years of rice and salt in which every european dies and you know the black plague you have a 700 year alternative history but where you get something that resembles in many ways the kind of scientific method, technological advances, a lot of parallels to what we had, uh, in fact, occurred. But again, I think what's so powerful about your work on science and what's, is that it's not really the same as the kind of maybe superficial liberal discourse these days of like, quote unquote, believe science, period. Science is the answer to the questions. It seems that in your books, often science is kind of like t- t- democracy in the sense that people are saying, well, this is the most scientific thing to do. And someone else, else says, no, that's the most scientific thing to do. So on Mars, some say the most scientific thing is to transform the planet, and others say the most scientific thing is to leave it alone. So I'd love to hear you just sort of say something about what does it mean to sort of think of science in that expansive sense where it's both a good thing and clearly contested thing that doesn't sort of automatically give answers in the sort of superficial sense that I
2: think we often hear bandied about. Yeah, well, you can't say the most scientific thing. What would that be? Uh, that That would be, well the most quantified, what science does is um, a certain modesty. It delimits its project. It's there to understand how the natural world works. And then maybe, this is the technology part of it, which is already a step out into the land of projects. Maybe we can create less suffering. Maybe we can have more control, more comfort. But um, science is saying explicitly, we don't set policy, which is to say it's not a philosophy. It's not a morality. It's a method of analysis. It's a method of studying of the natural world. And then when you, you say, well, what do we do with what we learn from science? That question shifts to philosophy and politics. And the scientists will say, look, tell us what to do. Uh, we're giving you new information. We're giving you the uh, capacity to build new powers, uh, reduce suffering, to increase lifetimes and health, and um, and get into a healthier balance with the environment. Do something with it. So, uh, the more it's not the most scientific thing to do, it would be the right thing to do. And what's the right thing? Well, you have to get to something like, uh, for me as an as a American leftist, uh, uh, Leopold, what's good is what's good for the land. So, this is often seen as anti human or environmentalist to the max, but the thing is, it's circular, and the land is our body. So when you say do what's good for the land, you're saying what's good, what's good for the future generations. Because if the land is healthy, the future generations can live. And this is important. It takes it out of the present. It takes it out of anthropocentric, you know, humans are the only important thing. So I'm going to kill rats. I'm gonna, uh, it goes on and on. The, the cruelty of the anthropocentric viewpoint towards the rest of our own human bodies is, is foolish uh, and short-sighted. So the synthesis that has to be done between the, the human-centric view of, well, it's all about us because we think, as if your cat doesn't think. I mean, it, it's so delimited in 19th century, in it's uh, overemphasis on, on humans as being the only important thing. But even if you were going to do that as a kind of enlightened self-interest, you have to understand that the, that the bacteria are more than 50% of the DNA in your body. You're a, you're a forest. You're a swamp. And that swamp has to be healthy, and it extends out, like swamps do, into the estuary, into the ocean, into the atmosphere. All that's part of your body. So this is where I, obviously, I'm, I'm getting agitated as I think about this. The most scientific thing to do makes no sense in, 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 as, a, as a statement. It's, it's the uh, what would be the thing that is the most just and sustainable for all the biosphere over the long haul. That would be the question to ask, and then science would be one of the tools, as well as politics and and rhetoric. How can you convince other people to this point of view? That's a pfft, gnarly question and And you go on from there let's um Let's talk a
1: bit about politics. It seems that you know a lot of the roots of your kind of political analysis as a leftist really are you know I see them developed in Mars, they come all the way through ministry, and it it seems to me like two kind of things stand out, and one of which changes with ministry. I mean, the one that I think stays the same is there's this kind of radical left democratic politics that, you know, you like massive street assemblies, popular revolts, deliberative constitution writing, communal scale social living, union organizing, tenant organizing. There's a lot of people sharing pots of stew in your books. Um, You like Mondragon, some strategic property destruction. But I don't see much of the kind of disciplined old left style political parties in that vision. On occasion, but it seems, and I wonder if this comes from that that moment of the '80s and the '90s. But that's the thing that I think is not super present. Um, and then I guess the other really distinctive thing to me is that it seems in many of your books that you see it taking often centuries to really create deep transformative change. It's not something that happens super quickly. And we'll come back to ministry, but you know, the Mars trilogy, centuries of of change, rice and salt. You know, and I, and I think we could go on. So I guess my question initially, you know, does it seem right that you have this radical left democratic politics that you've often seen change as being a very long iterative process. And what happens to the political party? You know, in the age of AOC, the DSA, Bernie, the Pink Tide, do we need to make more space for left political parties in the 21st century as a kind of key force on the left?
2: Good question. And I'm pondering, now that you pointed out to me, that's exactly right. About my fiction, I mean, that it, it, ta- it describes these other scenarios without getting into party politics. And I'm wondering if I I hadn't found the the stories that would allow me to go there rather than it being a political position as a citizen. On the other hand, I would want to say that my praxis is my novels and so it should be there and it isn't. So what's going on with that? I'm not sure. Um, I'm now going to have to think allowed to you, uh, this is not something I've considered before. And so that's always a little dangerous, I think, but maybe interesting. Okay, in America, we we've got a two party system. And I've often believed that anytime you try to institute a third party, it wrecks the party that you're closest to rather than creating a viable alternative for voters. Now, every once in a while in American history, that hasn't been quite true. But certainly in my working lifetime, it seemed true to me that um, the Green Party, farther left parties, they would just chivvy enough votes and enthusiasm away from the Democratic Party that the Democrats would lose to a unified right. And so I was always in favor of a united front that the Project for Americans is to pull the Democratic Party to the left and make sure that it's not a center-right party with a far-right party as the only two viable options, which often has been somewhat the case. With exceptions, you don't want to get too discouraged about the Democratic Party. And indeed, one of the things about the Green New Deal has been a deliberate evocation of the New Deal. So you have to go back to the Depression, you go back to FDR you look at a coalition of people who decided that things were bad enough and people were suffering enough that the, the left could pull together and at the federal level in the American system, make some progress and positive steps. Now, we all know that the New Deal made some deals with the devil and was uh, agreed to racism as a way to get the white South on board with it, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and that the Green New Deal has explicitly said that it's going to do better than that and needs to be what we now call a kind of rainbow coalition, uh, uh, representing everybody. And that's a deliberate rhetorical stance. The name Green New Deal was a deliberate red-green combination. I love the Green New Deal for its boldness in evoking all this history in a positive way going forward. So that's my, that would be my reflections on party when now the the mars books effectively try to describe 200 years of history so naturally things happen slow and you got kind of to terraform the planet as well as politicize it there are three revolutions ending each one of the volumes of a, essentially it's one novel but it's a triple decker so there's a lot of history there but that's not to say that things always happen slowly there are breakpoints there are revolutions and what's interesting to contemplate now is could you by legislation, achieve all of the advantages of a revolution without the disadvantages by making a Keynesian seizing of the financial system so that uh, neoliberal capitalism, with its uh, valorization of the market as the only monarch, gets overthrown by a throwback. And of course, the Green New Deal is throwing back to the New Deal. That again was Keynesian where the state seizes finance for the purpose of the public, uh, for the people as ownership of the entire business system. Well, we did it in order to fight World War II. That was a, a horrific reason to have to do it. Can climate change present the same sense of horror and emergency? That's an open question. If the revolution were to come, it could happen in the 2020s, in which we simply declare that in order not to torch the earth and destroy the basis of human civilization, we are going to have to um, seize the economic system and, and um, nationalize it. But it would be international because all of the nations would have to do it, the central banks would have to be unified together. It's scary when you put it in those those uh, terms, but it's, it's a scary situation. So then necessarily you have to talk about the tools that we have at hand, which are awkward and inadequate, can you nevertheless wield them to a successful result here? I want to get right into that
1: financial question in just a second, but I, I want to ask you one other thing about politics that it only occurred to me kind of recently, and it's, and it's in a way it's that intermediary step between the mass movement, maybe the party, and then this technical change. So of course you have characters who are scientists, you have characters who are technocrats, who are experts, but I think you also really like to write about political operators Frank and Mars is a classic one. We get a lot more. We get Badim and ministry. Maybe Mary becomes one over the course of ministry. But I think this character type recurs again and again in your books. It's a sort of hard-node pragmatist, a messy person, someone who knows how to get shit done, someone who's often very different from the other scientists and their disposition. And I just wonder, like, where does this fascination come from? Were there historical figures, whether it's like Robert Moses, Joanne Lai, Alvaro Garcia Linera, who knows, a New Dealer, What kind of inspired this, It feels like this passion for the political operator who always kind of stands out in your books and is really, really essential to any time anything interesting happens politically?
2: Well, thank you for that. I am interested in that character, and I don't know why. Um, I mean, I'm married to an environmental scientist, and she would describe herself as a technocrat, not a bureaucrat, and very involved with the science of uh, what happens to pesticides after they get into our water the afterlife of pesticides. So that's extremely technical, chemical, and um, not this kind of character. So that's not where it comes from. But she is part of a federal agency, and I've done a lot of work with National Science Foundation. And then also in my reading of history, there are those people who try to organize the efforts of others, and there, as a novelist, that's an interesting kind of character to try to describe. I can get my... I, I, maybe that's... It comes down to, as a novelist, I can write about characters who are political operatives, whereas a novelist, I can't get a good grip on trying to write about political parties per se. The two abstract, and I, I find myself fractionating out into, well, what's... How would that manifest in, in real behaviors that I can describe in sentences, in scenes, in actions? So the the operator, yes, Frank, I mean to say uh, there's art also in the Mars trilogy, the, the, the guy trying to connect everybody up. There's also Frank trying to um, connect everybody up, but in a more Machiavellian way. And yes, indeed, um, Ministry for the Future, it becomes about what do these people do? Um, because they're not scientists, and I suppose they're politicians, but often their appointments are, they're more like civil servants, and so they're mediators. So, what do they do in terms of organizing efforts? And can they be agent? What's the, can their agency, as such, be expressed in positive political action? Well, this is a question that only stories can answer. And in individual situations, um, here and there. I, I think back to um, Philip K. Dix, *The Man in the High pa- Castle*. Mr. Tagomi is a very minor functionary in San Francisco, and without wanting to, he suddenly is at a crux in in human history where he has to act or else there's gonna be a nuclear war between Japan and Germany that will be fought out in San Francisco or in America. And he acts. Well, that's always impressed me. Before I finish on this, I think this is another place to talk about distinctions and language. The the whole uh, false, uh, the category error of thinking that uh, science is just part of capitalism or um, another category error is this term elites. So elites is now a kind of a way to attack. Uh, what can you say? The one percent, the people in power, elites. But elites are are scientists. Elites are are university professors. Elites, well, kind of yes. So the word masks a divergence of projects between people who are rich, who want to retain power and therefore hire lawyers, etc., lobbyists, in order to keep their power, you know, by by killing tax laws, et cetera. Et cetera. And those are elites, but then also experts, scientists, um, technocrats, who are uh, working to try to make things better, let's just put it at that most general sense. So this term elites is one of these bad terms in that it confuses the issue. And it tries to demonize actually including the the experts that are absolutely necessary for us to get into a better place, as well as the reactionary uh, forces, or let's say people who are, only want to hold on to their riches for, for like one more generation, and after that, they don't care. It's not a good term. Uh, we need to talk about expertise. We need to talk about left versus right in, in the old classic terms of, of um, socialism versus capitalism kind of terms. And and admit that there's expert socialists we need really badly. Their work, their thoughts, their comprehension of the situation. And then there's you know elites that are simply moneyed people that want to hold on to money. And and that distinction gets lost with this term elites. So I do want to um, because I guess my bureaucrats. You know, I write about bureaucrats doing stuff in Zurich. Well, this is just a novel about elites. Well, but it's about leftist experts trying to make a more leftist world. Is that? I, I bristle at the idea that there's a term that just lumps all educated people together as being forces of reactionary.
1: Well, and of course, you know, who loves this discourse more than anyone is like Tucker Carlson and friends. Uh, It's the ultimate (laughs) mystification category for the populist right.
2: Yes, and and because their uh, rhetoric is um, successful for the people that like it, rhetorical analysis is something that English majors can bring to bear and don't enough. I mean, rhetoric is often regarded as just a a name like ideology for uh, what it means is something bad like you're just blowing smoke. That's rhetoric only. But rhetoric is actually the uh, the craft. It's an analysis. It's sort of a, a human science, an analysis of how people are persuaded politically and culturally. So then the ancient Greeks were very good on it. So there ought to be, of course, um, everybody. I mean, English majors uh, are could be political shock troops more than they are. They could do a better job of being... Uh, leftist actors in the world if they were being more aware of the, the, of rhetoric as a, as a necessary craft. So one area
1: where rhetoric can, I think, often be, be really tough is climate, the climate emergency. Um, we tend to have the story of apocalypse, and we have the story of peaches and rainbows, whether it's the Green New Deal or perfect getting the prices right or so on. We tend to have this kind of Manichaean opposition, like solutions, good, apocalypse bad. And, you know, I think the basic thing ministry does, and I think New York 2140 did this as well, the really kind of mind-blowing achievement is a scenario that doesn't fit one of these sort of easy categories of good or bad. It's much more complicated. And you've described ministry as basically a good case scenario. It includes geoengineering, terrorism, massive political violence, a huge amount of death and destruction. What, I I mean, I, I kind of want to ask you what your bar is for success, but I also want to just hear you say something about the power of the novel to get us a, an idea of climate futures that is not so simplistic and overwrought as some of the rhetoric would, would allow. And to be honest, I have to say, I think a lot of cli-fi does actually fall into that trap, but yours really doesn't. It really gives us a much more complex picture. And so I'd love to hear you kind of reflect a bit on that and why the novel is such a good form for taking this on.
2: Sure, uh, and thank you for that. It is important to me. There's a few things going on here. We're in such a bad situation in terms of our relationship to the Earth's biosphere that my definition for utopia as a as a as a kind of future the bar has gotten really low for this century. If we at the end of this century we have dodged a mass extinction event and have begun to bend the curve down in CO2 in the atmosphere, that's a utopian future and we can build from that. And also the, the establishment of justice amongst humans, of equity, is part of that project, a, a necessary part of that project. So it isn't as if I'm saying, let's have a, um, a half century of green fascism so-called, which I think is just another rhetorical attack on the green project, to describe that in a novel things going well, of us dodging a mass extinction event, that that would be good. There will be a lot of failures. There will be a lot of death and destruction along the way. It's unavoidable. It's baked in at this point. Even now it's happening. And um, the the poorer 2 or 3 billion people on the planet, the most disadvantaged in this post-colonial ne- neo-capitalist moment, is already suffering death and destruction, but it'll become more and more massive and even if we manage to succeed in coping with it and getting to a better future it's it's going to be widely reported oh we oh, we didn't meet our paris agreement goals here we've therefore it's apocalypse we didn't actually decarbonize fast enough we just hit four hundred and thirty parts per Of uh, uh, per million of CO2 in the atmosphere, it's apocalypse. So the apocalyptic imagination that as there are losses, as there are disasters in the coming decades, that that means doom. That means that we've lost the whole thing. And it's just not true. And the story has to be told in a realistic way. So in Ministry for the Future, a lot of good things happen. But I notice now reading it, because I assemble these things in a kind of a semi-conscious, instinctual state of tossing together scenes like 106 chapters, what order should they come in, ordering information where you want everything to hit the brain at once, but you have to do it one sentence at a time. That's a proposition so weird that uh, I can say that my novels are semi-instinctual things that I look at afterwards as a reader and see patterns that I didn't see while I was writing it. Now I see that every time something good happens in Ministry for the Future, something bad happens to stab you in the back, so that if you're feeling like, oh, good, things are going to get better, oh, no, but this isn't solved, etc. There's also lots of death, not just the mass death that starts the novel, which has made it notorious, but also individual deaths of characters that you know. And now I notice one's accident, one's illness, one's murder. And I had no idea there was that pattern there until I was reading the book afterwards. So the novel is good for thinking by way of thick texture, imaginative scenarios where you put yourself in other people's brains. That's an amazing power, telepathy. And then you put people in other times and places. um, That's time travel uh, and teleportation. So these science fictional powers are exactly what the novel does. But uh, and fictional experiences are in mental space, real experiences. So they have a, a power to change the way you look at things. so there's there's a power to the novel that I quite love. It, it is my my way of engagement. And so when I try to write them, though, what I would like to do is make it easy to do this Coleridgegian uh, willing suspension of disbelief. So you're reading my novel and people are doing good things. It's like, well, that's so utopian. People are never like that. And then you walk down the street and somebody's kind to you at the corner or gives you a ride or or even sells you a coffee. The whole world is a 8 billion person collaboration that is no reason that it su- succeed even as well as it does. I mean, there's lots of friction, but there's lots of cooperation. So the novel has to especially the utopian novel, has to walk a tightrope that is extremely um, narrow between plausibility and the reality principle. Like, yeah, this is the way people are. I recognize that. That's true. And, of course, true is a strange word. And then also project out a positive future that you can believe in. Well, it's a it's both a nasty proposition and it's also an extremely stimulative um way to get yourself a new story. So I've, I've enjoyed it for that.
0: I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on patreon.com. You definitely know about The Dig since you're listening to this podcast, and you probably know about Jacobin, which helps put out The Dig. But you might not know about Catalyst, a journal of theory and strategy. Capitalism is once again up for debate. Catalyst, a journal of theory and strategy, is a scholarly journal produced by Jacobin Foundation that aims to do everything it can to promote and deepen this conversation. Its focus is, as the title suggests, to develop a theory and strategy with capitalism as its target, both in the north and in the global south. That's an ambitious agenda, but this is a time for thinking big. You can check out Catalyst's great essays, including contributions from scholars like Mike Davis, and subscribe and print for just $20 for an entire year by going to bit.ly slash digcatalyst. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash digcatalyst. So let's talk about
1: one of the big plot points, and that is the idea of carbon uh, quantitative easing. So this is, you know, I think we would agree, most of us hopefully listening would agree, climate change is in large part an investment problem. You know, we have to spend, invest a lot of resources, real and monetary resources to get shit done, (laughs) to do it fast. A lot of people in the Green New Deal movement, a lot of green Keynesians have been talking about ways to, to push out money through massive public investment, through conventional public spending or green development banks. Now you focus on something different, it's this idea of carbon quantitative easing, which I'll ask you to summarize because I don't want to get it wrong. And I guess my question would be, you know, this is a central bank driven operation. It is not the kind of sort of investment politics that are traditional on the left. Um, so what is this idea and why should people in the kind of movement left think more carefully about the role of central banks in, in that realm of finance uh, as we go forward in climate politics?
2: Well, the central banks are crucial, I think, and need to be thought about deeply as to as a as a potential leftist project. But I will also say it's an all-hands-on-deck situation. There is no single uh, silver bullet solution to this. So carbon quantitative easing is important, and I think even crucial, but it's not going to be the total solution. It's going to need everything. And in, I think the Green New Deal is simply carbon quantitative easing. We all know now what, what quantitative easing is, is that if I can be simple about it for my own simplicity's sake, um, the creation of new money by the central banks without freaking people out and making them distrust money uh, so that that would lead to inflation or deflation as signs of, of distrust. So uh, we saw something like 5 to $10 trillion created after 2008 and given to the banks to continue their same stupid gambling, but just to keep liquidity going and keep the economy from crashing. It kind of worked. And then 2020, the pandemic was an instant depression, and then there was instant quantitative easing. Again, a couple trillion dollars. And these are, the technical terms are, are complicated and often beyond me that the, the creation of new money is a, like selling of bonds or it, the various things that central banks can do. The carbon part of it would be that the central banks would create new money, let's just put it flatly like that, that was dedicated to decarbonization purposes first, after which it would circulate out into the economy as ordinary money and hopefully would have a multiplier effect, as Keynes called it, and um, do some good there. But the first use of it would be necessarily good by way of uh, directed, uh, you would have to say, legislated um, payments. And so that's where it crosses over with the Green New Deal. And it's true what you say about investment. Private investment, which is actually vastly larger than what a central bank could dare to do, in a short term anyway, always go to the highest rate of return. It's an algorithm It's an algorithm both in the technical truth of its algorithmic mathematics that finds the highest rate of return, sifting through the various opportunities for investment. And then it's a human algorithm in that the managers of hedge funds and business schools in general, the teaching of the way that capitalism ought to work, is that you invest at the highest rate of return. Well, that's like an overriding consideration. It means you don't have to think about what would be most uh, sustainable, what would be most just. No, what's the highest rate of return? which really is a measure of, of uh, profit, which is a measure of injustice and non-sustainability. So we've got a system of private investment that's almost exactly backwards to what we need now. And indeed, the feeling of doom is this whole, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism, because this this highest rate of return looks like an overriding consideration that can't be changed. Well, what would change that uh, if you had carbon taxes? And... and Often, at this point, many people in policy worlds will say, oh, but we can't pass ca- carbon taxes, people don't like them. Yes, you can. You can just um, reframe it rhetorically and, and push it legislatively to where you pay the true cost, which would be the way to put it, that you don't rip off the future generations, that the cost of burning carbon is X, we're not paying it. This gets incorporated into the Green New Deal, and it's called the social cost of carbon, which is a good term for it. So you see the efforts on that front but also regulation. And and so taxing regulation, saying, no, you can't invest in something that is uh, non-sustainable and unjust. And so this is sort of like, say, the the pebble mine up in Alaska, which going for a little bit of gold would wreck an entire salmon uh, uh, watershed. And just saying, no, that's illegal. You don't get to do that. So uh, it, it does come back to a political, it comes back to this a semi-Keynesian, semi-leftist project of um, seizing the means of production, you might put it in an old terminology, of saying what can and can't happen, of controlling the economy from from the um, political level at the level of legislation and uh, taking over what the society does at the political level. Now, this is either shocking or it's a, the left project, and maybe both at once, but it does seem to me that in an all-hands-on-deck de- situation, you can't just talk about the central banks. They are crucial. They do create the money that we trust and and a- allow things to go forward in the world that we're in now. So they are super important. And I'm very glad that there's a network for greening the financial system that exists, that the central banks themselves are trying to suggest to the world, well, this is how you could use money as a force for good, new money. And and yet at the other it always has to be added. That's only one project that has to be pursued politically to get ourselves through the climate crisis.
1: Thanks. I you know I really appreciate this, and of course I'm a sociologist, so I'm not going to be here representing economists with their one silver bullet pricing scheme. But I think it seems to me your novelistic instincts are right. There's a kind of it's all hands on deck. Deck. We need a kind of kitchen sink macroeconomics. Throw everything at the problem, and and it's not going to be just one thing. And I think that is very important for, for leftists to understand just how messy this will be. The other question, of course, is how do you build the power to force any of these solutions through? In ministry, um, you know, I think there have been some debates and including with you, you've pushed back on this idea that it's all technocratic. There is a lot of mass mobilization. It's just not in the narrative foreground sometimes. Um, I want to ask you what you see as kind of most promising in, in the US domestic left Today and maybe it's not that promising because the Indian Left is probably much more successful in ministry. But I think about on the one hand, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter mobilizations, indigenous-led organizing against fossil fuel infrastructure. That really reminds me of the kind of bread and butter of your leftist politics that you love—these kind of semi-spontaneous but structured, spectacular mass events. And then on the other hand, we have the DSA, Bernie, AOC, the rise of this more traditional U.S. electoral left. So I'm, you know, I'm curious, you know, how you think about. Potential of the US left, that strand of mobilization, that more traditional strand of electoral politics, how they might help move us along, you know, move us forward in the kind of universe depicted
2: in in ministry. Sure. Well, um, I'm a DSA member and I love to see its existence. And I want it to scale, as they say in economics classes, and become extremely widespread. And um, if it's lots of young people that's good if it's lots of baby boomers going into gray panther mode that's also good what you want is to and by mass demonstrations in the street and just simply protesting civil disobedience what you teach the democratic party infrastructure the the leadership the funding the whole complex of institutions and think tanks and study groups and individual units in every county in the country, the Democratic Party clubs in each county that are doing the work, like Rotary Club or Elk Club, to do Democratic Party work, that they need to be convinced all across the board that it's not just a an ameliorated business plan, but a more fundamental leftism that, okay, if we want our young people on board... We need to shift further left. We need to be instantly for diversity. We need to be instantly now for justice and for long-term sustainability so that the demonstrations help with that, the, the work in committees, the boring meetings that you go to. Oh my God, I'm, I'm, I'm a veteran of meetings and they are so boring that I've had to contemplate the idea that there can be things that are both boring and interesting at the same time that you have to see through the boredom to the interest of it and that being in a r- ridiculous small-town meeting about local politics and coming in with a left perspective, that although that was boring, it was more interesting than watching TV that night by maybe 50%, maybe 100% because watching TV at night to palliate your brain or even reading a good book. There's something about human interactions, face-to-face, small-scale crunching through Robert's Rules of Orders and arguing and trying to be polite when you're absolutely furious or at least indignant. This is interesting stuff. And as a novelist, I've even tried to represent that kind of thing in novels, which is harder than hell, I have to admit. I want to add to this, though, something that occurs to me from your question. That um, Okay, if I think of myself as an American leftist and also as a what I would call a radical... And then I'm talking all the time now about how central banks need to do Keynesian, you know, quantitative easing. Well, I see the criticisms coming up. You know, here's the writer of the Mars trilogy, where at the end they're in a completely different political economy. Um, although you could just say it's democratic socialism, but at least it looks radically different at the end of that book. And here I am now talking about uh, Keynesian tweaks to the finance system. Look, I'm thinking as a radical still, but we are in a crisis and I want to put our actions on a timeline such that first you oppose austerity and all right-wing efforts, and then you do that by way of Keynesianism. This is the Green New Deal, it makes perfect sense to me. You can call it liberal and, and use liberal as a word that people further to the left will use to disparage the work of leftists that are closer to the center than them. And so these are liberal projects. But if you were a radical now and you're in the emergency that we're in in climate change, I want to do a science fiction exercise and just run you through the 2020s and say that it starts with anti-austerity and with environmental awareness and then Keynesianism and then social democracy and then democratic socialism. And then you got yourself through this century without a mass extinction event. And you're in democratic socialism that you've built in a rapid stepwise fashion that is a in other words is a time stamp on your political position. And if you go out into America today and say, "Well, I'm an anarchist," well, I love you. I'm an anarchist too. In 500 years, there should be everybody on the planet should have an, or maybe it should be in 50 years. Let's just put it out there in an indefinite future. Everybody on the planet has an equal amount of power and comfort and wealth and political power of course that's an obvious goal and that i think is the great anarchist goal but right now in the world that we're in you've got to go campaign for whatever democratic politician is there opposing the reactionary forces so if you put a time stamp on your political view and say well Ultimately, I would like X. I think X would be X. But right now I need to support Y because we're in a situation. So you become a situationist, which of course wasn't exactly how they did it in France. Um, Of course you agitate. Of course you push. But um, cutting off people who are on your team, uh, doing the narcissism of small differences and arguing intensely with the people that are closest to you because they actually will listen to you Rather than realizing you're part of a united front and part of a time-stamped process, where there are things that can be done right now and are needed to be done right now to get to a better goal later on. And so maybe even this is uh, liberal or anti-revolutionary. If so, so be it. But I want to explain myself. It seems to me that it's an all-hands-on-deck situation, that species are going extinct, that biomes are dying. The catastrophes are here and now. So we need to make political uh, coalitions. We need to have a working majority in places like Congress and in places like state governments, a working political majority to get the necessary work done. And that means making alliances with people that you don't see eye-to-eye to philosophically Um, but are necessarily your allies in this battle. So that's the point I would want to add there.
1: That's extremely helpful. I want to now push us, let's push us one one step further into the the muck that you bring into the book, which is ecoterrorism. Now, there's a lot of ecoterrorism in the book, and you've talked a lot about it already, the kind of ethics of it. I actually want to ask you about it from a different angle. I think the premise of a lot of the ecoterrorism in your book is the idea that there's going to be anonymous forms of drone warfare that will be possible, maybe even widely available, forms of robot violence where it would be impossible to track down the perpetrators of a bombing or some other attack. To the best of my knowledge, this really first develops in your work in 2312, uh, which is another terrific novel everyone should read, Uh, and then it recurs in ministry. So there's the pebble attacks, but more broadly, anonymous, untraceable uh, violence that allows for a kind of ecoterrorist guerrilla warfare to really thrive. So I'm curious, what research uh, have you done, or is it purely imaginative work? What research or thinking have you done that's convinced you that autonomous, often-automized guerrilla warfare could happen? And if that's really possible, how should that change the way we all think about 21st century geopolitics and about the role of violence in politics in the next decades? Because this is a theme I think I have not encountered until I read your book, And when I did, or these two books, I was like, this is a real game changer. I mean, this really changes our concept of how politics can play out.
2: Well, let me, uh, again, I have to do some new thinking here because you've come at it from a different angle, which I appreciate. First, got to look at this word eco-terrorism. What if you call that resistance to capitalist realism? What if you call that, well, freedom fighters? This is another You know, the the language game comes into play here in that you're making a judgment in advance of the fact when you call it eco-terrorism. If the ordinary workings of the world are going to lead to a mass extinction event, that means that future generations of humans will be uh, suffering in a, a wrecked biosphere to the point of mass death. What's your responsibility to resist that? And. If resistance takes violent forms, uh, distinctions immediately can be made between um, violence against property, like sabotage or laying down in front of pipelines and civil resistance or violence against persons, which happens all the time against the poor, but against the rich and powerful, it gets immediately tagged eco-terrorism or just plain crime. And there are wars of resistance that later on those warriors are... Um, valorized as doing the necessary for the future generations. So you fall into problems of ethics and morality, of means and ends. Um, there are good discussions of this out there that are uh, beyond me to summarize right now uh, are, are fundamental questions for everybody. I come at it as a suburban middle-class white American male, almost 70 years old, so a baby boomer. This is a completely Specific subject position where I would plump for nonviolence, for pa- uh, pacifist resistance, for mass action. And this is why my novels will often describe things like um, mass movements or demonstrations. And Ministry for the Future does describe acts of violence against people. Murder, uh, destruction of, uh, bringing down planes, uh, murder of individual uh, uh, individuals, of people, uh, as if these were the people. The people reporting on them. The text itself is often in the form of first person. The persons doing it describe it as being righteous action. So. I would say my book Ministry for the Future is not a good instrument by which to think about these issues because it's just as messy as history itself. When I wrote it I was thinking people are going to be really angry. The people at the sharp end of the stick they're already really angry, but if they get angry enough and if they then okay you can already do suicide bombing, so it isn't as if terrorism isn't already available in the world. Or should I say let's go back to that rent uh small scale acts of violence, of murder for uh, political purposes, murder of strangers just to make a point and to scare people into doing something. And I suppose that's what terrorism means. And uh, you terrorize somebody, you scare them into changing their, their uh, political and social behaviors because of fear of violence against themselves. Well, um, I described all those things. What I And what I hope was um, a novel that wasn't making judgments that this is good or this is bad. My feeling personally is that violence against other humans creates such anger and resentment that the backlash against it means that terrorism doesn't work. And indeed, Erica Chenoweth, I think, is the author of Why Civil Resistance Works, does a sociological study, a historical study of the sociology of resistance showing that actually civil disobedience and pacifist resistance actually gets the political goals that were ostensibly the reason that other arms of those same movements committed violence and murder, and they actually had a negative result rather than a positive result. So Chenoweth is um, postulating that when you're angry enough, and it's funny, I just read that excess heat makes people angry, which is what I call the sky is blue type scientific research, where you prove something everybody already knows. Um, when people are angry, they do things that are against their own best interests and are irrational and counterproductive to their own side in often sometimes grotesque and horrible ways so you got to try to look to what's the most effective political action and and, uh, from my own subject position it keeps coming back to um, citizenship uh, mass demonstrations civil resistance uh, maybe sabotage i mean i looked into that very closely when i was writing antarctica and i like this book by andreas malm called how to blow up a Pipeline." where he goes into the ethics and the morality of that as a philosopher. Uh, What's the responsibility of of middle-class citizens in the developed world to a world situation that because of uh, already existing neoliberal capitalism is descending into uh, chaos and a mass extinction event? What's our responsibilities? What should we do? And so those considerations are better for sorting out And I would say that Ministry for the Future is more like the slurry of current events itself. It it presents a lot of stuff. Possibly I'm not capable of making good recommendations for other people. And that my novel, I hope, steps back from that a little bit and puts out I would guess maybe 50 eyewitness accounts. And obviously, these are fictional. I made up these eyewitnesses. But I did what novelists really ought to do. I tried to see it through other people's eyes and present it as if I were that other person. Naturally, there's limits on that. But when you try that hard enough, you can go into a trance. It's it's effective, I think. It At least it works for me and people reading the Ministry for the Future you know, it's getting a strong response across the world, including in India. So I think that the, the game of the novel to try to imagine you're somebody else is a very important game. And, and in that, I created a mess. And and so it doesn't have recommendations. It has like case studies that then you have to sort out for yourself what you think would be right or wrong.
1: I, mean, I think that's, that's absolutely right. Um, and uh, to me, it is, just, it is essential to divorce the question of that, I think, and you put it well, sort of biosphere resistance, resistance to capitalism from uh, do we support this, yes or no? The novel is an account of what might happen from a relatively optimistic point of view. But we, it seems, I think, need to think just much more about the role political violence is almost certain to play. Um, in a situation as dire as you, uh, you know, of course, depict, which, which is the case. Um, so geoengineering is another big topic in the book. Um, in the book, you depict solar radiation management, uh, blocking out some of the sun with sulfur dust. You depict draining water from underneath glaciers. Uh, maybe most optimistically, you depict direct air capture, uh, and you've written about that as well in, in Bloomberg Businessweek. And this is, you know, geoengineering is heresy for much of the climate left. They see that as, you know, the ultimate fusion of science and capital, an excuse for fossil fuel, you know, companies, just a general distraction from action. And I think you tend to look at it more like a character from one of your novels, a scientist who says, I'm going to look at this on the merits. Uh, I'm going to simply evaluate these technologies on the merits. And I guess what I want to ask is, What are the conditions under which we could really have a democratic and genuinely scientific debate about geoengineering projects at a time when the influence of corporate money is so great? How realistic is it to sort of imagine that these decisions will be made in ways that uh, somebody like you would feel good about?
2: Well, in my book, they're made by a nation state that has suffered an enormous climate disaster, and they want the temperatures cooler instantly, no matter the side effects and no matter what the rest of the world thinks. I can imagine that happening. Uh, obviously, because I did. But I, I, I mean, I think that could happen in the real world, because we are closing in on temperatures that are going to uh, cook people who aren't protected by electricity. And that will be a game changer in the nation state that it happens. So geoengineering, well, the word is too broad. And the and knee jerk reaction on the uh, left, my left, is um, disturbing to me, because it's too simplistic, and it wants uh, Uh, heroes and villains. And it's also a kind of 1995-type response. Um, Now that we're verging into unlivable temperatures and a mass extinction event in an all-hands-on-deck situation, it might be that we would want to cool the planet for five years or so by throwing dust up into the atmosphere, which is the solar radiation management um, there are obvious problems with that, but it's no longer a get-out-of-jail-free card for uh, capitalism going on the way it is. Nobody's discussing it that way who are proposing it, and the corporations might, in their secret minds, if you think of them as snidely whiplash twirling their mustaches, they're saying this will allow us to burn all the rest of our fossil carbon. No, it won't. First of all, it's a very um, minor gesture in the Earth system to imitate a Pinatubo, Minor enough that we could actually do it as human beings, which shows how small it is. And and so geoengineering, the engineering implies that we know enough to do it, which is uh, hubristic and wrong. So maybe you call it geofinishing. Some people have, are calling it climate restoration to try to get to the ends rather than the means involved. Um, there were other people saying, well, that's a little bit of a lie of a name because we're never going to be able to restore the climate that existed in eighteen hundred. I'm not so sure about that one myself to tell you the truth. And I offer climate restoration as a way to rethink this issue, but also the issue is too big uh, as as such geoengineering uh, to deliberately interfere in the earth system in order to try to mitigate climate change. Is that what it means? Maybe. Then it comes down, well, if you pour a whole bunch of iron filings into the ocean, then it has a plankton bloom, then they die and go to the bottom, that carbon's on the bottom. Nobody likes that plan because the ocean is already stressed out and and who knows what might really happen in terms of knock-on effects, because this is often the attack on geoengineering. Well, we don't know what the secondary effects would be and they could be worse than the cure, which is which is true enough to give one pause. But this solar radiation management has come to people's attention because it actually maybe could be done, it probably should be limestone dust, like calcium carbonate, rather than um, sulfur dioxide, which is what volcanoes put up there. But sulfur dioxide, which we could put up there, eats away at the ozone layer, it's contraindicated. But uh, limestone dust is inert and is up there in the atmosphere anyway all the time. You put up more, it falls to the ground. That is problematic if it falls on the ice and darkens the ice and, and and melts more ice in the Arctic, but in any case, it falls to the ground. Five years later, you're back to square one. You don't have to do it permanently forever in order to keep the temperature from increasing. In fact, you would plan to do it just once in order not to get caught in that trap and see what the effects are over five years, see if you wanna do it again later. It's not by any means the most dangerous thing that we're contemplating. It's probably not as dangerous as um, the generation of nuclear power plants that we build. Nuclear power, there's another horrific uh, no-go zone for the American left anyway, for leftists in general, uh, capitalist power, danger for future, etc. But what if the nuclear power is being generated by thorium rather than uranium and the byproducts are are less dangerous for future generations? In other words, everything has to be on the table. There is no leftist truism that I trust, except that justice and sustainability are the overriding considerations of civilization and ought to be our lodestone, our our guiding star for everything that we consider. And we're in an, a mass extinction event that's just beginning that we have to dodge. And so everything else needs to be considered uh, and not ruled out. Um, I think that the resistance to the idea of geoengineering just ad hoc is again the category error of confusing science and capitalism. It's the assumption that, well, this would only be done by capitalists trying to retain their power. But what if it was being done by scientists to keep from millions of people from dying in the tropics? So then oh, oh, it becomes an argument over means, over ends, purposes, projects, rather than the means of it. And the means We've already pumped uh, more than 100 parts per million of CO2 into the atmosphere. We have geoengineered this planet to every corner of the planet has been geoengineered by accident and stupidly as a byproduct or just uh, uh, not stupidly, but just ignorantly. And we didn't know that these side effects were going to happen. And then when we knew, we either changed or we didn't. That's when it becomes either, um, you know, innocent or criminal. So as for the other geoengineering things, I'm I'm comforted to see a paper in Nature that describes pumping water out from underneath the glaciers in Antarctica and Greenland to slow them back down. That's geoengineering. What could you complain about there? Nothing, because that water pumped from the bottom of the glaciers is a trivial amount of water, and it just freeze on the top again. There are no bad side effects that can be predicted. Uh, with solar radiation management, it's said that there might be effects of the monsoon in South Asia. If true, that would be bad. The monsoon is variable, but it's very important. The glaciers are also important. They come out of the Himalayas and provide water supply for that same South Asia. And the glaciers are going fast. So a climate modeling exercise that postulates damage to the monsoon is maybe not as powerful an argument as the actual melting of the glaciers that form the water supply for a billion people. So I guess I should... Summarize because there's so much to say here. It all has to be put back on the table. The arguments from '95 about moral hazard, etc., and capitalist power need to be set aside for the current moment of of a desperate emergency.
1: These are these are very powerful arguments to think with, and it's a huge benefit that the book has, I think, thrown them on the table in this way, and to and to hear them coming from the left. And I think also of people like Holly Jean Buck who are writing about this from the left, mm-hmm. asking. Uh, really difficult questions. Unless, I don't know if I want to say this is exactly a lighter note, but I do want to just flag, I think often in the novels, there's this interesting thing where you talk a lot about re- rebuilding beaches. And that also is you know, one of the motives for this really great idea, You know, pumping the water out from under the glaciers. Is the people I know are the most excited about that geoengineering plotline in your book. But I just wanted to give you a minute, if it's of interest, to say something about the role of beaches in basically human civilization, that I think really preoccupies you uh, in a ways that, you know, makes sense to me. But there's more than one book where the question of the disappearance of the beaches, the need to reconstruct them is is very important. One of your books ends with the earthly reconnection through a kind of scene on the beach. Um, and so I'm, I'm, you know, I'd be curious to just hear a word or two about that kind of big emotional driver for you uh, in terms of thinking about sea level rise. Of course, there's the human, deme- the other dimensions of, of cities and so on, but the beach piece is something that has clearly hit a nerve, I
2: think, for you. seems to have. It sure has. And I can use that to lead to another thing that has hit me. But I'm a beach kid. I grew up in Orange County and that was a, a crazy foolish moment in American history and social life. The suburbs of the 1950s and 60s, incredibly impoverished, social landscape, I would say. And the beaches save my sanity, because when you go down to the beach, you go off 10 feet offshore, you're back in nature and struggling for your life. It's a reality check and a lesson in what's real. And that was my exposure, first exposure to the natural world were beaches. And it's a lovely culture worldwide. I mean, it's, it's um, famous or notorious for its uh, sense of ease and pleasure and um, the kind of surplus Of pleasure that we can have as animals when we're back in the in the ocean and on the verge of the ocean, and all the beaches are essentially doomed. Uh, It only takes a couple of meters of sea level rise to have them all be under uh, under even at low tide, and that kind of sea level rise is almost baked in already. So anything that could be done to slow sea level rise, I'm interested in because, and then. Of course, the, the utopian imaginary, um, nothing's permanent. Maybe we can lower sea level. Oh, my God, that would be centuries long and very difficult to accomplish, capturing that much ice back on the land. OK, let's start another ice age. I don't know. It's a little too utopian. So it comes down to mitigation. Or, uh, the, the more we can slow sea level rise, the more we can stop it from in, getting bad the better off the beaches will be. But uh, as you pointed out, also all the seaports of the world, at least a tenth of the world's population, uh, and sometimes people say a quarter, live within 30 or 40 miles of the coasts on purpose because that's where the world economy is connected up, et cetera. And a lot of the great cities of the world would be underwater as in my New York 2140. I mean, it's a, it's a big issue for me, but it has that personal element of a place that I loved when I was a child, and have spent far too little time on as an adult, um, is, is really in, I, I would say, more than danger. It's right now, it's almost baked in that we're gonna lose the beaches. Now, maybe we can shift sand higher. I mean, in some places in others not. It's again, a, a peculiar, almost geoengineering question, but it makes me sad. The same thing with the Sierras uh, and all of the high mountains of the world, the glaciers are melting. So. Uh, All questions of whether the climate is warming up have been completely um, answered to the point where the people who are denying we have to do anything about it are trying to uh, suggest we're already doomed as a way to excuse their inaction rather than engagement. But the glaciers are melting so fast that in places where they were already residual and quite small, like in California, Sierra Nevada, they're, they're gonna be gone no matter what we do. We could be uh, as virtuous as one could possibly imagine starting right now, and yet those glaciers will still melt by what's already been baked in. And uh, they were uh, beautiful. They were part of the ecology. Um, there will be huge stresses put on landscapes up there. That's a wilderness area. The landscapes where the glacier's going away uh, are going to be also hammering humanity are in the Himalayas and in some other mountain ranges where they, they form the basis for river systems that are water for a billion people. So one can take it from a kind of a, a middle-class aesthetic position, oh, my poor Sierra Nevada, my playground, my my heart's home. But for other people, it's like, wait, my water, my daily water that night to live on. And so that's a way different scale of, of disaster coming down on us. I want
1: to ask you one other question about this emotional relationship to non-human nature. And so you you mentioned the Sierras. You mentioned a bit there about animals. My sense is that over the course of your books, you've had this idea of humans' relationship to animals as a key part of the relationship to non-human nature. Uh, you have you know, even a kind of mad scientist developing new animals on on Mars. But in the earlier books, it seems that climbing and other kind of physical adventures in the landscape Really predominate as the way that your characters engage with the the natural world, but over time I sense a kind of tilting balance. The climbing is there, the physical adventures are there, but we're getting more and more um, animals. Um, animal reintroductions play a huge role in the in the denouement of twenty three twelve. There's a plotline about rewilding, kind of reintroducing uh, sort of restored animals in twenty one forty. Shaman is this extraordinary account of humans like foundational, spiritual and practical relationship with animals. A lot of the most, to me, emotionally resonant passages uh, in ministry involve animals, uh, including a passage that's been talked about quite a bit, which is this uh, rural community, I think a white one, United States dissolving itself to make space for wilderness restoration and essentially for animals. Now, biodiversity is obviously a big deal and its collapse is a very big deal. But I see there's a, a bit more in there from you, that there's something of an idea that there's a spiritual relationship with animals that can help to drive a, a form of ecological politics, not just a superficial admiration of charismatic megafauna, but something um, deeper. So I'd love to hear you say something about, you know, how have you thought about animals uh, and their role in environmental politics in your writing career? How's that changed? And, and you know, what makes you optimistic about a kind of animal-centric environmental
2: politics today. It has changed over my life, and the writing reflects it. Um, I've become much more aware of the animals I encounter in the Sierra Nevada, and seeing the Sierra Nevada bighorn sheep for the first time in 2008 after having backpacked in that range for, at that point, I don't know, 30 years, uh, was a, a stunner. That particular subspecies of the bighorn sheep had been down to 100 animals, And then the Endangered Species Act came into play as they were declared endangered. And now they're up to about 700 animals because of human interventions to make space for them and uh, help them to survive this choke point that will always be there in their DNA. That was a transformative event for me. And I began to write, I began to pay more attention to the uh, written accounts, to the sense of Muir's phrase uh, horizontal brothers and sisters. Um, to my pets, to the cats in the house, as uh, Temple Grandin teaching us that these were uh, wild African cats, even in their DNA, that are coexisting with us, and just more awareness of the the mass extinction event is particularly hammering the large mammals, which are indeed our cousins. We're very we're mammals. We're very like them. They're very like us. So even the deer that are a little bit too ubiquitous in North America because their predators have been stupidly killed off by us. So now we have deer, we also have uh, ticks, we also have Lyme disease biting us because we don't have wolves. This ecological circle, the, the sense that we're part of a larger body, that we're shooting ourselves in the foot every time we kill a wild animal that we consider a pest. All of this has come to me to the point where maybe... I think the most beautiful scene in all of my writing is in 2312, where the, the animals come back. It's kind of a dream scene, a sort of fantasy scene with a science fictional component to it. Very surrealistic, but um, it's it's one of my best for sure, and indeed kind of came to me as a waking dream. Uh, and now I'm living it, and now I'm thinking the Endangered Species Act should be foundational to Our our behaviors, and that's why I refer to the Leopoldian: what's good is what's good for the land. What he does not mean the soil there, although good soil is fundamental. He means the ecosphere, all the other animals, our our fellow citizens. So, giving citizenship to animals, political representation, as in ministry for the future, but also as in Ecuador and Wales and certain other European countries and in Asia, where. The natural world now has legal rights as well and representation in the political system. All that strikes me together as a complex to where it feels politics begins to take on a religious sensibility, a sense of the sacred, doing something more than just the enlightened self-interest, but something that's just bigger. So yeah, it has been a big part of my um, lived life as well as my riding life. And now when I'm in the Sierras, I look for animals. I mean, the marmots were not there this summer. I don't know why. They are actually very common up there and it was a little disturbing not to see them. The pikas are sky island creatures. They're teeny little mice like rabbits that are, pikas are beautiful and um, industrious and smart. And they are great people. And they, uh, if their body temperature gets to seven, if the air temperature gets to 75 degrees for an hour, they die of overheating. So they need to be high and cool. And of course, they're having to move higher because temperatures are getting hotter. We are just like pikas. We're on a sky island. It's called the earth. We get driven high enough and we can't go any higher and then we're going to die. So um, the pikas are a great lesson coming from one of our smaller cousins.
1: The sh- the shift you describe is so in your own life is so powerful, and and I, I think it does dovetail with the kind of rise uh, to prominence of indigenous climate politics. which, of course have been around for a long time, but you know my students have been so moved by work by writers like Nick Estes and his accounts of kind of our non-human relatives. So uh, to me, it's been a, a a totally unexpected shift in my own thinking about environmental politics and reading your work in the last couple of years. I'm going to end with a literature question, and I think you've waited long enough for a straightforward literature question. On the wonderful Marooned on Mars podcast, uh, you said that your favorite book growing up was 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, um, which I loved. My mother's Guatemalan, a big part of my life. Um, It's the best known work of all time of magical realism. Um, I was at at one level a bit surprised to hear you say that because it seemed to me a bit out of left field. But the more I thought about it, the more it seemed to fit with just how interested you are in colonialism and post-colonialism in your books. I think, if anything, Ministry is a book about post-colonial politics just as much as it's a book about climate politics. Now the defining tendency of magical realism is that it's a device where supernatural events are narrated with a straight face, a face like a brick, as Garcia Marquez put it. And this works because the style so often describes the dramatic social and political features of post-colonial Latin American life more convincingly than straight realism. So you often talk about science fiction as the realism of our times. But today I'm going to ask you, isn't Ministry for the Future a work of magical realism?
2: (laughs) Well, that's beautiful. I think I would hope so. But no, no, let's say it's science fiction still. And I guess the distinction I would make is it's a story set in the future. That makes it science fiction by definition, by my definition. And it tries to um, stick to the realities of what we see in our typical empirical Uh, reality in a way that magical realism allows itself to skip aside on from time to time for symbolic purposes. But you're probably referring to the whole gestalt of ministry for the future as being rather magically positive uh, in terms of it's a kind of a best case scenario. And since there's a reversion to the mean and we're probably not going to get the best case, portraying it is like a magic trick. So it is a realism and it's magic. So it's magical realism. And yes, okay, I love that. But I also wanna go back to Garcia Marquez as one of the greatest novelists of all time and of the 20th century and of the developing world. And so if you're in Latin America, growing up when Garcia Marquez did, then magical realism is the felt reality. It's the best realism for Latin America in his time. Inexplicable things happened um rationality is elsewhere, and often rationality comes to your town and wrecks it, destroys you, and takes over so that's the kind of Adorno bad rationality of scientific progress in that it creates colonialism in that the Scientifically advanced countries can come in and and without um paying much attention to certain scientific values if if you could put them as such certain values goes ahead and destroys things and you get the colonial and post colonial disasters so um what i see what I want to say is that if you take uh, garcia Marquez's uh, literary method straight and you start doing magical realism in Manhattan, as you sometimes will see, especially in the post-years right after 100 Years of Solitude came out, well, it's just silly. And indeed, if you write science fiction in which magical things happen, which happens all the time, um, it trends towards silliness because it isn't true to the emotional situation that Garcia Marquez was specifically describing. So I would stick to the idea that at least for for me in the developed world in North America in my time, that science fiction is the best realism of of my situation, whereas for Garcia Marquez, magical realism was the best realism for his situation. So that the novel, because these are both forms of the novel really, is capacious and variable, and it adapts to its time to try to give a representation that readers recognize as being the felt reality of their own situation. So that's what I've been trying to do. And God, I mean, Garcia Marquez succeeded so gloriously that, so say your mom's from Guatemala. Well, Guatemala has a Macondo all across Latin America. Macondo was a reality. It's kind of amazing. I'm Kim Stanley Robinson.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you, Daniel.
0: Kim Stanley Robinson is a science fiction writer who has written over 20 novels, most recently, The Ministry for the Future. Daniel Donna Cohen is a professor of sociology at the University of California, Berkeley, where he directs the Sociospatial Climate Collaborative. He's also the co-author of A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that capitalist production, therefore, only develops the technique and the degree of combination of the social process of production by simultaneously undermining the original source of all wealth, the soil and the worker. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. The Dig is recorded at WBRU in Providence. Our communications coordinator is Tammuz Frankel. Our senior advisor is Via Rio Francos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio. Same on Facebook. And please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's an iTunes or whatever such site, please also take a quick moment to rate and review us. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you telling friends, people you know in the world why you listen to the podcast, why they should listen to the podcast, etc. Please make propaganda for us and please do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge.